Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. I want to share a little story with you. In 2016, my wife and I travelled to um, Melbourne to, well, we flew to Melbourne and then drove up to Bendigo for a friend's wedding. And uh, on the flight home from Melbourne, we sat next to this bloke and, I don't know, I could just get that sense he wanted to talk. And he's kind of looking over at what I was reading and it was something Christian related. And then he just outright asked, oh, oh, do you believe that? And I said, I do. My wife, Julie, was sitting on my right, he was on my left, and then we just started chatting away, and he goes, yeah, all right, I just got the vibe that you guys are Christians, hmm. So, here's one for you. I just came back from Africa, where I was working with Ebola crisis victims. This is back then, right? And then he proceeded to tell me some horrific, horrific stories about mothers and children, and uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to share that here, but... He said, and that, to be honest, is why I can't believe in your God. He said, I used to. I used to do all of that. You know, I used to believe what you believed. I, I read the C.S. Lewis stuff, and no, nah, not for me. And uh, I was thinking I should probably say something right now. And it was just quiet for a little bit, and then Julie was nudging me, and she's like, isn't, like, this is your thing, you know? So there I was, just stunned silence. I didn't know what to say. And... Uh, got a little bit going, he just kept on talking. I asked him a couple of questions just to kind of find out a bit more about kind of his background and sooner or later, it, it just the conversation kept on flowing and he kept on unpacking more and more and more about himself. Uh, and then as soon as we turned on the final approach there, we're coming over the Stockton Sand Dunes, I'll never forget it, into Williamtown, every single clear thought, ABC argumentation, like uploaded, I could almost hear the in my, in my mind as to everything that I wanted to say to that guy. And I'm like, but it's too late. <laughs> and I thought, wow, wasn't it just like the Lord, you know? You think you, he gives you the words to say in the moment, but in this case, he held them back. That only gave me enough time to just to say one small thing. And I shared with him something um, from John chapter 11 about Mary and Martha and the questions that those sisters had about their brother who just died. They said, why, if only you had been here? And I just looked at this guy and I said, that's the same question that you have right now. And it's, isn't it interesting at the response that Jesus gave? And I just unpacked that passage with him a little bit. And he just looked at me. We touched down. And then we started to taxi him back. And he looked at me and he goes, that's really interesting. Can we talk some more? And he handed me his card. Now, I, I share that story with you because it is an awkward, clumsy, real-world example of evangelism. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Evangelism, the faithful communicating of the good news of Jesus to people who do not know him. In Acts chapter 14 that Alicia just read out for us, I think we see four principles of evangelism that I want to explore with you today that hopefully we can take home and remember next time we have a conversation with somebody on an aeroplane, at work perhaps, down the road, perhaps even a member of our families. And these four principles are going to serve as our outline. So number one there is discern the moment. Secondly, meet them where they're at. Thirdly, follow up. 
And then fourthly, praise God. So we're going to walk through these one by one in the order of the verses up there. First of all, discern the moment. So uh, we're working through the book of Acts, and we're, we're calling this series To the End of the Earth. We're taking that title out of Acts 1.8. And not long ago, we came upon a major hinge in the storyline here in the book of Acts, as the Apostle Paul uh, set off on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. And you recall that the base of the operations now for the, uh, the early church has moved from Jerusalem down south up north to Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. Uh, the apostles basically give Paul and Barnabas the thumbs up, like, yep, okay, people are starting to eat pork, they're not quite Jews, they're Gentiles, the gospel's going to them, that's cool, if you want to continue that journey, go for it, we give you um, the, the thumbs up, uh, go, go nuts. So Paul and Barnabas set off from Antioch, they set sail from Antioch, and Mick showed us a couple of weeks ago that they moved west, uh, taking the gospel to the island of Cyprus there. Uh, just as a footnote, it's interesting that we're tracking one particular uh, direction of the expansion of the gospel here. But these missionary journeys, there were many of them going on. They were going east, north, south. We're tracking one particular one west here, probably because Luke, the author, happened to be a, a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul as well. So he had kind of, you know, first-hand material to write from. But we have accounts of the gospel going into uh, like Edessa uh, and other cities out further east. And unfortunately, a lot of that storyline, at least in Christian Western church history, has been lost because Islam came to power and basically that whole region there has just been subsumed by um, Islam today. And so before that, though, for a good 600 years, there was missions going out. You can read all of this in an interesting book by Jenkins... Um, called The Lost History of Christianity. Not lost in the sense that it was like, you know, some conspiracy, but just it's just not been studied very much. Uh, very, very interesting. So the gospel and these missionary journeys were going out in all sorts of directions. And we saw here that in the city of Antioch, um, different Antioch, by the way, to the, the one that they set off from, just to keep you on your toes, this one is now in uh, Asia Minor, Galatia region. Um, we saw there, I think it was Tony last week, who, who took us through how there was um, some resistance that they met there, um, some opposition. And in response, we saw there that Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and then moved on to another city named Iconium, uh, which is, of course, the, the city that we happen to find ourselves in today here in Acts 14.1. So if you have that in front of you, we're just going to walk through these verses. Acts 14.1, we read, At Iconium... As Paul and Barnabas entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke, we read a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now clearly there's a pattern that's starting to emerge here, right? The gospel goes out to people. And there is reception on the one hand. People believed. But the gospel goes out and there is opposition. People rejected. Their minds were poisoned against the gospel. That would be an interesting study just to consider what it looks like to have one's mind poisoned against the gospel because I think it happens all the time today. Reception and opposition. These exist side by side when we evangelize, which means evangelism is never a straightforward activity. right? It's probably why it's a bit clunky and awkward and clumsy sometimes. 
We need wisdom to navigate through the poles of reception and opposition. There is a complex of issues going on here. And this is evangelism principle number one, discern the moment. Now, this isn't Paul and Barnabas's first rodeo, right? We've seen them traveling a little bit already, uh, individually and now together. They've met reception and opposition already. Uh, they're getting used to this. But look at the way they deal with this particular opposition here, verse 3. They meet this opposition and then we read, they remained for a long time. Seems odd. Seems odd in light of opposition. They remained for a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, it's like the opposition intensifies, so hey, we're going to knock it up a gear and meet you where you're at. They spoke boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So this, just note that last word, this is both word and deed ministry that we're talking about here. They aren't just preaching at people, they aren't just speaking here, they're doing things. Word and deed. And verse 3, it's really interesting. Paul and Barnabas, they're speaking boldly, but look, it's the Lord who is bearing witness to the word of His grace through them. In other words, the evangels are just the vessels, the conduits through which God works. And I think this is how Paul and Barnabas discerned the moment. They navigated through the poles of reception and opposition They knew when to stay and when to walk away as they were led by the Spirit. The Lord was the north on their compass, so to speak. He was the key source for all of their evangelistic activity and action and direction. And here we see Paul and Barnabas, they stayed as long as the Lord had work for them to do. Now, that's not explicitly stated here, but when we turn over to Acts 18, we see something similar in Corinth where Paul comes to the Greek city there and he gets met with a lot of opposition And he's like, uh, do I stay? Do I go? What do I do? And then the Lord appears to him in a vision and says, stay, for I have many people in this city. And so he stayed for another 18 months and continued to minister. I think that's probably what is going on here. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Iconium as long as there was work to do. There were many who had not yet received the good news in that place. So first principle of evangelism discern the moment. That is a spiritual discernment, to know when to stay and when to walk away. To say that a little bit differently, discern the moment implies that you first and foremost are in a healthy spiritual place where you can discern the things of God and the bigger realities that He is working in and through your life. One of my favourite episodes in... uh, the Chosen. Got there. And one of my favourite episodes in The Chosen is season two, where Jesus gets James and John to plough a field for a Samaritan man. Now, as Jews, they weren't very happy about this particular activity because there was a lot of bad blood back then between the Jews and the Samaritans. So when they finish up ploughing this man's field, which is really hard work back then, uh, they go and find Jesus, played by Jonathan Rummy. Let me just call in Jonathan Rami so there's no confusion here. Right? We're talking about art. I happen to think it's good art. It's not the Word of God. So James and John go and find Rami, who happens to be standing uh, by this road. And as they're chatting to him, like, you know, why, why are we out there plowing that men's field? These Samaritan boys walk past with their donkeys, and they heckle them and throw rocks at them and spit at them and basically welcome to town. 
And James and John, they just want to do what they do best. They want to jump right in and have a good old biffo with these boys. And Rummy just holds them back, right? James and John, the sons of thunder, they're wanting to call down bolts of lightning from heaven. And Rummy just holds them back. And then the, boy, the, the Samaritans walk on past. And they look at that Rummy and they're like, what are you doing? And he looks at them and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why do you think I had you plow that man's field? Was it to learn about farming? Was it just to help somebody out? And it's brilliant the way that they, they work this script. They say, no, it was to show you that what we are doing in this place will last for generations. Rummy just schools James and John. He's like, can't you see what's happening here, guys? These people are believing the message in truth. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people in a region of the country that you don't happen to like were mean to you. Who do you think you are? What, you think you're worthy of the gospel? You think you're more worthy than they are? No, you're not. And that is the whole point. That's why Jesus came. You see, discern the moment. It begins with recognition that you are a part of something bigger than your own feelings, than your own predispositions, your own affiliations, your own ethnicity, your own thoughts, your own comfort zones. There is bigger things going on here in the program of God's kingdom. Everyone needs a story to make sense of in life. Everyone. I don't care who you are, where you come from. You listen to the news. Everyone puts everything into a particular story paradigm to make sense of it. This is it for evangelism. God's kingdom program unfolding in and through your life. This is what helps orient us, folks, between the poles of reception and opposition so that we know how to move in our evangelistic activities Yet with all of that said, let me ask you, how many of us still find evangelism quite awkward? Like here we are, having a good old talk, it's very comfortable, despite the heat. You might even say amen to this if we're in a good old Baptist church, but we're going to go out into the world tomorrow and an opportunity may present itself and then we get all awkward and seize up. Perhaps it's Fear of rejection. Fear of saying something that might be the wrong thing. Might make us look a bit silly. Fear of failure in some places. Maybe even persecution. But here's the question. At that point, when the opportunity presents itself and we get a little bit uncomfortable, what is navigating us through the poles of reception and opposition there? Is it the kingdom program of God or is it our circumstances and our comfort? When the gospel was going outside of the lands of the Jews into the regions of places like Samaria, Jesus taught his disciples that their neighbours were not just people that looked like them, not just people that ate like them, that smelt like them, that spoke like them. They were all kinds of people. They were the Samaritans. For Paul and Barnabas, they were the Galatians, the people of Iconium. For Christians, you and I today, when we talk about our neighbour, it is any human being we meet, any person that God puts before us that we may help them by showing them the love of Christ. That's all. That's what we mean by neighbour. So the question now that we need to ask ourselves in a place like Australia, which is not 
really, you know, we're not putting up with persecution here in any global sense of the term. It's whether or not our evangelistic efforts, our evangelistic activities, our love, are they, are they being led for our, our love for our neighbour? Is it being led by our trust and faith in the things of God and what he's working through us? Or is it being led by our own insecurities? And perhaps, to our own shame, cynicism and doubt. Are we more concerned about how we come across to others or whether or not Jesus will even come across to them at all? Discern the moment. Paul and Barnabas were led by the Lord, known when to stay and when to walk away. And walk away, they eventually did. That's what we see here in verses 4 through 7. Like Jesus, he told his disciples that if anyone did not receive their message, the disciples should shake off the dust from their feet and go elsewhere, Matthew 10. There may come a time when it is appropriate for you to walk away. And the wisdom here, you know, aside from not being murdered in the case of Paul and Barnabas, is again a spiritual discernment. I remember a long time ago listening to a preacher who was asked in a Q&A session, what are some of his greatest ministry regrets? And he sat there and his answer really surprised me at the time. He said, spending a lot of time and effort discipling people where the Spirit of God wasn't at work. Now that's not to say the Spirit will never work in those people. His point was to say that it's simply futile to cast pearls towards pigs, so to speak. I mean, if we're just vessels through which the Spirit of God is working and the Spirit of God isn't working in this particular individual or this particular circumstance, then that's analogous to like a water pump that's running without any water going through it. It's just making a lot of noise, grunting and spluttering and eventually it'll die, (laughs) die out. We need to discern where the Spirit of God is at work and channel our efforts there. That's a liberating thing, by the way because then you might not find yourself beating your head against a wall so much. Sometimes the most God-honoring and effective thing you and I can do in evangelism is walking away. And that still communicates something, by the way. Now, not all of us can just walk away. Perhaps we live with somebody. Perhaps we're married to them. I don't know. In those situations, I'm not saying we need to walk away, but perhaps the most effective thing we can do is stop talking about it and commit them silently to prayer. Prayer for an opportunity uh, that it may arise when they will be ready to receive the gospel. Okay, so that's the first principle of evangelism here. Discern the moment. Secondly, this afternoon, meet them where they're at. So after ministering for a long time here in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, they move on to Lystra. This is about 30 kilometres now south-southwest of Iconium. It happens to be the home of young Timothy, by the way. And we read here in verse 8 about a crippled man who Paul heals. Now, notice there's no mention of a Jewish temple here. That would stand out to you if we had just listened to all of the other sermons up to this point. Because there was always a temple uh, in the towns that the boys came to or when they were traveling. This miracle seems to take place out in the streets because we read of the crowd's reactions when they saw what happened. And that makes sense when you do a little historical work on the town of Lystra. Lystra had more of a reputation for being rustic, uh, tribal, kind of non-Roman in their lifestyle, uh, a bit more militant um, and less educated. There wasn't a Jewish temple in sight here, but there was a temple. 
a temple to Zeus, a Greek god. We see that here in verse 13. We also know it from archaeology. It's one of those interesting touch points here where we have unearthed um, a temple uh, ruins as well as some inscriptions to Zeus and Hermes in this region and as well as a stone altar. So a miracle takes place when they come to Lystra. Paul heals this man. It's very interesting. He's identifying with Peter who also healed and Jesus. Very similar um, event. And we read here in verse 11, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycodian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. Now, what's all this about? Well, there's a Roman poet named Ovid who compiled a collection of myths um, and stories from Greek and Roman mythology. Now, the thing to understand about ancient Rome is basically they brought the muscle, they brought the military might um, to the empire, but basically they assumed uh, the entirety of Greek culture, Greek language, Greek art uh, that was established by Alexander the Great and later divided underneath his generals. And they even adopted Greek gods. They basically took them and renamed them and called them their own. It's very interesting. For example, Zeus, the Greek god of the sky and thunder, known as the father of the gods, the Romans renamed him as Jupiter. Hermes was also a Greek god and the son of Zeus, or a son of Zeus, known as the messenger of the gods, who was renamed as Mercury. Interesting, uh, if anyone here is a student of scripture, Hermes is where we get the name hermeneutics from, interpretation of the divine word. So Ovid compiled these myths from Greece and Rome. And one of the myths is known as the myth of Bacchus and Philemon. And in this myth, Zeus and Hermes, the two gods, come down from the heavens to earth to visit Phrygia, which is, if we went back to that other map, you would see it there, it's slightly north west from where we currently are in the story. The story here is that Zeus and Hermes came down to earth to the people of Phrygia and they didn't recognize that they were the gods. So no one particularly cared about them. They didn't show them much hospitality except for one humble elderly couple named Barcus and Philemon who invited them into their home and looked after them. And as a reward for their kindness, Zeus and Hermes revealed their true identities saying, hey, we're going to destroy everyone because they didn't listen to us. They didn't recognize who we were. But you, Barkas and Philemon, we won't destroy you. In fact, we're going to grant you a wish. And you know what their wish was? Their wish was that they would die together so that neither had to live apart. And so Zeus and Hermes granted this wish uh, and turned their home into a magnificent temple and turned both Barkas and Philemon into two trees intertwining, representing eternal love. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? Trees. This myth, this story was known to the Lyconians. So where Paul and Barnabas rock up and they perform this miracle, they were pro the, the Lyconians were probably thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> Zeus and Hermes are back in town, we better not turn out to be like the Phrygians here, quick, let's go get the, the priest, let's come out with our oxen and our garlands and make sacrifice, let's not... Let's learn from history, right? So there was probably a bit of a panic going on. And all of this was going on in Lycodian, so I don't think Paul and Barnabas would have been picking up on what was being said until they saw 
the oxen coming out. But you see, the point here is Jews had longings and desires for certain prophecies. We've seen that this whole way up as the boys are coming to town and telling them that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses, etc., etc. But where the Jews had expectations, desires and longings for certain prophecies, the pagans had desires and longings for certain myths. And I want you to notice something here. Whether it's a prophecy or a myth, both are suggestive of desires and longings. And that tells us something a little bit more general about humanity. Irrespective of whether or not you're a Jew or whether or not you're a Gentile, to be a human is to live with desires and longings, expectations of fulfillment, of satisfaction. I mean, today, ever wonder why superhero movies are so popular? We all want a hero. We all want the bad people to get beaten. In fact, it's, uh, Tolkien calls it the eucatastrophe. I think he made up that word. It's the happy ending, the resolution to the story. If you don't have that, if the bad guys win, you just walk out of the cinema feeling pretty dirty, right? There needs to be that resolution. We all love the superhero story. There's no coincidence that Superman came out in 1938 by DC Comics because what was happening then? World War II. It wasn't a good time and they needed something to hold on to. And hey, God was dead. Nietzsche told us that, 1899. So let's just make up our own Superman. Literally in German, that's what he called it. Another talk. Um, very interesting stuff. We all need a hero to hold on to and to look to because we have desires and longings. The only question then is to what or whom shall we look? Before he was a Christian, C.S. Lewis and his good mate J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a Christian, they used to discuss at length into the, to the night literature and legend, folklore and fauns. Lewis once said to Tolkien, you know, I think it was something like, myths are just lies and, and worthless, even though breathed through silver. His point was that they sound beautiful and they may be powerful, but they're ultimately not true and therefore just worthless, right? Tolkien vehemently disagreed. He argued back and he said, the fact that we find them beautiful is actually suggestive that there really is something true hidden within them. I mean, pagan myths may not be true taken as a whole, but the profound sense of desire and longing they evoke within people, eternal love, trees, right? Something in that is true and good and beautiful. And isn't that what we see here in this story with Zeus and Hermes? Like, think about this story. Zeus is who? The father of the gods. Hermes is what? A son of God, the word, the messenger. And what is the story when you put it all together? It's a revelation, it's a sacrifice, there's eternal life. It's a Greek pagan myth, it's false. But isn't it suggestive of something? God the Father, his son, the eternal word, come down to earth, who was sacrificed, that we may have eternal life. We read here, of this story that is going on in the heads and hearts of the Lyconians, these longings and these desires. Again, I'm not sure that Paul and Barnabas would have picked up what was being put down by them because it was in Lyconian, but then they see the, the, the priest of Zeus coming in with the, the bull and the oxen, the garlands ready for sacrifice, and they pick up what's going on real quick. And what do they do? Confronted with idolatry, what do they do? Verse 14, they tore their garments Rushing out to the crowd, they say this, Men, why are you doing these things? 
We are also men of like nature with you. Now, in ancient Jewish tradition, to tear your clothes was a practice associated with expressions of grief, uh, distress, deep, deep emotional pain. It's a visible, visceral way of expressing anguish. And I think this shows us here uh, the posture of Paul and Barnabas as they were evangelizing. This is them, again, discerning the moment of where they were at before God and who these people were as well. People just like them in need of God's grace. It's like they're saying, don't worship us, worship the one that we are telling you about. This isn't about us. You remember that famous British explorer named Captain James Cook? He landed on Australian shores 29 April 1770. Well, he went on to Hawaii after Australia uh, about nine years later. And when he landed there, the Polynesians thought that he was one of their gods. Now, unlike Paul and Barnabas, Captain James Cook didn't tear his nice jacket. In fact, he didn't really discourage this misunderstanding at all because he thought, well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm not in his head, I don't know, and he's dead now. But he, he was probably thinking it's kind of convenient to be thought of as a god because I get lots of supplies and it works out well for us. But sure enough, his sins eventually found him out and the Hawaiians clubbed him to death on the beach. That doesn't happen here. Well, Paul doesn't get clubbed, he gets stoned, right? And you might not say that, that's not much better, okay? But he gets stoned for precisely the opposite reason. Because he did not compromise with the culture. He did not syncretize his message with the culture in order to win them over, as tempting as that may have been to leverage the whole, yeah, I'm divine, listen to me for a moment. As tempting as it may have been to play the idea of God, Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes. They don't play along. What do they do here? They come out into the town. They don't tuck and run. What do they do? They meet them where they're at. Look at this, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. There's a lot going on here, okay? But I just want you to notice, first and foremost, how absolutely different this gospel presentation is to everything we have seen before in the book of Acts. Acts uh, 13, Paul and Barnabas, they come into Antioch and they taught the Jews there about how justification doesn't come from the law of Moses. There's none of that here. There's no temple, there's no Jews, there's no Bible quotes, there's just a pagan crowd in a rustic rural square. So let's be real clear here. There is no one-size-fits-all gospel presentation. We cannot cookie-cut this and mass-produce it. We shouldn't be in the business, therefore, of beating people over the head with a particular prepared script that they can't understand. True evangelism never happens at the expense of common decency and basic friendliness. Sadly, that's that's not always the case, is it? We should be in the business of Paul and Barnabas here in Galatia of meeting people where they're at. It's like Paul says to them, okay, so you're worshipping these other gods, Zeus 
the God of the heavens. Fine, let me tell you about the God of the heavens that I know. He's not just the God of the heavens. He's the maker of the heavens and the earth. Let me tell you about the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in it and all that is walking across it. It's like, you want to talk about Zeus? The God of the sky? Fine. Let me tell you about the one who made the sky. (laughs) You want to talk about the Word? Let me talk to you about the God who became the Word. He goes right back to the Scriptures here. This is Genesis chapter 1 stuff. I actually remember when I was in grade 2 in Gunnedah, uh, South Public School. I think it was grade two. We had this um, local Aboriginal elder come into our classroom and he was sharing with us about his culture and, and his religion. And he, um, he was telling us how the God, about their God, Biomi, um, the big God of the sky that they believe in. I don't know why, but for some reason, I remember I had the opportunity to, to stand up and say, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in Biomi, I believe in Jesus. And he looked at me and he said, that's okay, mate. Biomi is just a different name for Jesus. We believe in the same God. And I stood up on the teacher's chair and I said, what fellowship does light have with darkness? <laughs> no, I didn't, guys. I was, I was in grade two. Give me a break. I went home super excited and I went and told my mama. And I was like, mom, it's, it's really okay. They believe in Biomi, I believe in Jesus, but it's actually the same thing. It's just a different name, Right? And she looked at me, and, she, and she, I'll never forget this. She, well, I don't remember her exact expression, but it was something like, mm, no. <laughs> and then she, this is the, I do remember this, she opened up the Bible, and she pointed me to John 14, 6, and said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? Or Biomi. As Chesterton quips, that many people say all roads lead to Rome is perhaps one reason why so many people never get there. <laughs> there is no higher name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. My mama took me back to the scriptures. Paul takes these Galatians back to the Scriptures. And in doing so, he doesn't just bring them news, right? If it was just news, it would be like just news. But it's called good news because it is a contrast to what they're currently believing. And this good news is euvangelion. This is the gospel. This is the word in the Greek for gospel. He brings them gospel. To meet people where they're at, therefore, does not mean we compromise with the culture, we syncretize the Scriptures to their particular mindset. Paul is emphatic about this. He says, verse 15, jarring, turn from these vain things. There is a sternness here. It's how it's packaged. The word for vain things, by the way, it means empty, hollow, insufficient. It's in complete contrast to what he says here in verse 17, the God that satisfies your hearts. Now, when you step back a moment and think about a polytheistic society, it's not too hard to do today because we kind of live in one with everyone believing all sorts of things today, uh, picking and choosing. But back then, you know, the idea that if you were a soldier, you worship the god of war. If you're a sailor, you might worship the god of the sea, Poseidon. Or if you're into the market and trade, you might worship the god of commerce and so on. Um, Everyone basically, because there's no overriding God or anything holding it all together. Everyone just worships whatever it is that they desire or long for. But what does that ultimately mean then about who their God is? It's their desires and their longings, right? 
So it's not really that you're worshipping the God of war, it's that you're worshipping war. It's not really that you're worshipping the God of the sea, it's that you're worshipping your sailor in, your, your occupation. It's not really that you're worshipping the market or the God of commerce, it's finances. And the same can be said today with the way we basically worship the things that we desire and long for, whether that's career, whether that's acceptance, whether that's family, very good things. There's nothing inherently wrong with these things, right? The point, though, that that I think Paul is making here, and this is a Romans chapter 1 point, is that it is vanity. Why? Because any God worthy of the name is not a created thing, and all of this stuff is created things. He's saying if it's a God, it needs to be worthy of the name and therefore the creator of all things. Paul says turn from such things, not to something else, but to the living God, the maker of all things, the maker of heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. You see what Paul is doing? He's meeting the Lyconians where they're at by presenting them the gospel in a way that they would understand. The Lyconians, again, didn't know about the law of Moses. They didn't have conceptual categories for things like sin and salvation, and so many people today don't, right? So to draw the implication into the modern context, if you will, as I'm saying this. They didn't have categories for the idea of like um, the afterlife even, heaven and hell. But he meets them where they're at with his gospel presentation by appealing to the points in common, the God of the sky, the Father, the Son. Now he doesn't admittedly get all the way to Jesus here. He gets cut short by this stoning situation. But when we turn over to Acts chapter 17, we see Paul have round two with the pagans. And I think we do see there where he would have gone here. And basically in Acts 17, he gets all the way up to the resurrection of Jesus, from beginning with their unknown gods right through to the resurrection of Jesus. So Evangelism 101, discern the moment that you may meet them where they're at. And here's the thing. Just like discerning the moment begins with this recognition of God's bigger kingdom plans, so meeting them where they're at begins with you recognising that God met you where you're at. God met Paul where he was at, remember? The road to Damascus. Paul was a restless Jew, holding on to prophecy, longing for the desire for that prophecy to be fulfilled. He was no different to these restless Lyconians holding on to myth mythology. He was actually no different to the, uh, to the Jews that were chasing him down from the cities either. In fact, don't miss the irony here. Paul receives treatment by these Jews that have chased him down from Antioch and Iconium now and stoned him nearly to death. That kind of witch hunt run-in is exactly the same kind of persecution that Paul dealt out. That's why he was on the road to Damascus. He stoned Stephen. Paul would likely have recognised this. And I don't think he would have thought of himself any better than these people. He was probably deeply sad when he saw these Jews rock up. His testimony, I don't know if you remember, when we were talking about the conversion of Paul in Acts chapter 9, we were saying how we just wonder if, if his memories of the way of Saul, the persecutor Saul, just would have stayed with him on the road when he was the Apostle Paul. I reckon they did. His testimony was proof that he, just like these people, needed the forgiveness of Jesus. To claim Christ is to claim culpability in his death. Paul and Barnabas are not gods. 
They are men in need of God, just like everyone else. That's why, as Christians today, we cannot, we must not pull away from people who do not know Jesus when their need of grace is just as great as our own. No matter how unrelatable somebody may be to you in their personal choices, in their life circumstances, in their moral practices, in their physical appearance, in the language they speak, we must strive to make a connection with them. Because we're all flat-footed at the foot of the cross. It's just not our business to be calling down bolts of lightning from heaven on people. (laughs) The cross of Jesus Christ shows the worst things that you thought and said and did and shouts over all of it, forgiven. And if we can be forgiven, anyone can be forgiven. Meet them where they're at. You might say, David, okay, I'm with you, but I don't know how to do that. Or at least I'm a bit awkward at it. Well, join the club. I'm not naturally good at this. This is a learned thing for me. My wife's very good at it. She spends her days talking with all sorts of people who walk through the door as a medical practitioner. And she often hands me um, different resources to help me out. And here's one of them. Heather Holman, Six Conversations in an Isolated World. Holman's a Christian. Uh, She gives some really practical advice in this book as to how we can foster warm connections with people. How do you meet a person where they're at? Well, here's just one suggestion. Holloman says, in every conversation, there needs to be at least four things. Number one, be curious. Believe that the person in front of you is a marvelous gift to unwrap. Just be very interested in them. Ask them about themselves, what they care about, what are their desires and their longings. Secondly, believe the best. A lot of us approach people today, even our friends, with a degree of suspicion and judgment. And often in our culture, we're always vetting people, like, ooh, which way are they going to vote in the referendum? What's their political affiliation? Ah, they're one of those people. Got you in your pigeonhole. Don't do that. Believe the best. Thirdly, express genuine concern. Show you really are invested in this person or these people. What are their major stresses? Reflect them back. Actively listen those things back to them to show that you're listening to them and that that they're being heard. And fourthly, she suggests that you share your life. And this is now an opportunity for you to connect with them from your own life. There's a lot of social science behind all of this, by the way. But as Holloman also shows that there's a lot of scripture behind it as well. You know, Philippians 2, Romans 12, Galatians chapter 6. Okay, discern the moment, meet them where they're at. Thirdly, this afternoon, follow up. After Paul's message is cut short because of this stoning situation uh, that takes place, the disciples gather around him, and here we read in verse 20b that he went on with Barnabas to Derb. I think that's around another 50k, so it's a pretty long journey. Now, check this out, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derb, And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Now, what in the world is going on here? Like, seriously, you just got beaten to a pulp by some angry mob. Your blood is still painting the pavement. Oh, it's a great idea for us to walk on back through those cities. Hmm. What were they thinking? Well, look here. Their reason for returning now is, is very, very different. Verse 22. They returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, 
encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. You see, Paul and Barnabas now, they're not going back to evangelize. That's done. And they've shaken the dust off their feet. They are now coming back to the reception. They are coming back to the places where the Spirit of God is at work. This is, again, a spiritual discernment, only this time it's meeting people where they're at in having accepted Jesus as their Savior. They have turned from vain things to the living God. Paul and Barnabas follow up. Evangelistic principle number three. And I think this is hugely important and sadly often overlooked today. You know, I'm trying to grow grass at home by seed, and if I just threw out the seed and walked away, it'd get torched by the sun and eaten by the birds. We must take time to cultivate the seeds that we scatter as believers. Build relationships. Invest in people. Disciple and mentor those who come to the faith. Be friendly and hospitable. And don't be one of these people, sorry if you are, you want to be all organic without any organisation. Because from my experience... Uh, Not not only is that a contradiction, but from my experience, that's usually code just for chaos or, frankly, worse, perhaps, laziness. Growing grass is an organic process, but it takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of organisation. That's why we read here, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. They prayed with them. They fasted with them, committing them to the Lord. Intentionality, organisation, structure to cultivate the seed that was planted that is an organic growth by the Holy Spirit. Work where the Spirit is. It's, it's, an, it's an organic thing that is organized. We must be intentional about our evangelism, therefore, and think it through and plan it out. And after you have an encounter, how are you going to follow up? As one of the reasons um, given here, the importance of intentionality we read in verse 22 is because many tribulations will come now obviously paul knew this right his blood was probably out on the pavement still but so would everyone else if they had seen what had happened to paul and they were still all in they needed this word right Now, let's be careful here. When Paul says we go through tribulations to enter the kingdom, he's not saying that suffering qualifies us like a criteria to get into heaven. That's not his point. What he's saying is that it is difficult to grow in your faith without suffering. It's difficult to go through all of this without hardship. And hasn't that been the excursion that we've seen in Acts so far today, the journey in Acts? The growth comes through suffering. I remember this interview with Steve Rinella, the guy who hosts the documentary Meat Eater. And he was saying once in this interview, um, there's really two types of fun. There's the cheap, quick fun of a roller coaster that you enjoy in the moment. Uh, And the second kind of fun is like when you go on this hunt and you don't catch anything and it's like sleet and cutting ice and windy and you're stuck in your tent most of the time. It's fun because you always look back on that with fond memories of the challenge. Now, I don't want to refer to suffering here as fun. I wouldn't use that word. But I think Ronella's point is well taken. We quickly forget the cheap thrills in life. But moments of suffering stay with us. Various philosophers and sociologists today, I could cite them, come have a chat after if you'd like, have observed that our modern secular culture 
is the worst in human history to equip people to handle suffering. If the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose whatever makes you happy today, which is pretty much the Western message today, right? Then suffering isn't ever meaningful. It's just a disruption. So when it comes along, your little journey in life, you either need to get rid of it, and if you can't, then sit down and melt down. And there's a lot of that happening, sadly, truly sadly. Christianity is so different to this. It's so different because it doesn't put that kind of pressure on you. We're saved by grace. And when we suffer, we don't have to be stoic. We don't have to fake it, repress it, suppress it. We can cry and we can weep. Jesus wept. But at the same time, we don't have to be nihilistic because we don't live without hope. I'll never forget the words of our dear friends who lost their baby after 29 days. Julie and I were at their home chatting with them and Amy looked over the coffee table and she looked at Julie and I and she said, I hate that this happened. I wish it never happened. I'm so angry that it happened. But I never want to go back to knowing God how I knew him before. You see, Jesus redeems even our suffering. Because now even our worst moments can be meaningful. Now what does that mean? Like, please, meaningful? I'm not buying that. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. Think about this. Paul calls his lifetime of afflictions light and momentary. Paul, remember, Paul, who suffered until the sword severed his head from his body, right? Shipwrecks, snake bites, persecutions, beatings, floggings, stonings, anguish from the church. If Paul had a retirement plan, it was post-beheading. Okay, he, he suffered right to the end until the Roman sword cut off his head. That Paul says here, all of that is light and momentary. Now what, is he, is he blind? Is he minimising what he's going through? Are you really trying to encourage me with this chapter from 2 Corinthians, David? No, just the opposite. Paul was not blind. His eyes were open to the things beyond the grave, to the things that were unseen. And he wasn't minimizing what he went through. He was maximizing the glory of God that was to be revealed. The biggest story of God's kingdom program and the hope that that holds out for all of us is where we get our meaning in the suffering, which allows us to wake up tomorrow and continue on. Hope doesn't take away the hurt, but it does mean you can continue moving forward. And when people see that in you, when people see you living with purpose despite incredible suffering, it's going to look different to them. 
particularly today. And maybe, just maybe, that hope that they see in you will be a catalyst for a conversation where they are receptive to the gospel. Because at the end of the day, what is hope? But literally the gospel itself, embodied in your own suffering, adorned from a night, a resurrection from a cross, hope for the eternal weight of glory from whatever pain you've gone through. You can't see that here. You may not feel it right now, but it's in God's word and we can either believe it or we can lose heart, like Paul says. Discern the moment. Meet them where they're at. Follow up. Fourthly, finally, and very, very quickly, praise God. Let me just read this out and then we'll wrap up. After following up with the new believers in Galatia, Paul and Barnabas made their way back to the docks in Italia, verse 25. And we read here, verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. When it's all said and done, and we're all said and done here, this is the end of the first missionary journey. Two more to go, stick around. This is where we land with a report of praise for all that God has done. And that God would do it through us. It's pretty amazing. Evangelism is not about efficiency, clearly. If it were, God would have no need for us, right? (laughs) Evangelism isn't about efficiency. It's all about intimacy with God. Intimacy for the evangel in that we've been invited in to participate in his bigger kingdom work. And intimacy for the evangelized because they now have an opportunity to participate in God's kingdom. This is why I believe that the more we grow in our faith, the thinner the wall between our praise and evangelism will become as evangelism becomes the natural outworking and overflow of who we are before God, his children, our first love of God that then drives our love of neighbour. So much more that we could say on all of this. Evangelism 101, discern the moment, meet them where they're at, follow up, praise God. Let's just leave it at that and let's praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to be here with your people. We thank you for this word in Acts 14 that reminds us of your kingdom purposes in and through evangelism. And Father, we thank you for the lasting legacy of pioneers like Paul and Barnabas who stand as examples of of how we can go about the task. Uh, Lord, I ask for wisdom for all of us that we may find uh, new creative ways to communicate the timeless gospel in our postmodern times in a way that defies the illusions of our age and yet resonates with the good aspirations and hopes of our neighbours today. Never with compromise to the basic message. Father, to see and uh, accept things like our own inadequacies as the very things that you use to do evangelism, it's a liberating thing. So just embolden us, Lord, 
no imposter syndrome here. Don't let it be about us as we go into conversations. I ask, Lord, that we would be a people unashamed of the gospel, for that is the power of God unto salvation. And there are many in this city of Newcastle, many in our lives, perhaps even in the homes where we sleep, who need to hear it. Help us to see them. Help us to have a discerning spirit to know what to say to them and know when to be silent to them, when to stay and when to walk away. And Lord, as we do all of that and as we suffer, no doubt, for your sake along the way, we just pray that you would haste the day when our faith will be sight. As Peter says, though we do not see you, Jesus, we love you. And even though we do not see you now, we believe in you and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is our faith, the salvation of our souls. Declare it through us, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.